It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 298 for June 24th, 2012. This week, Adobe Illustrator adds features and power. The Asus Transformer tablet, great, but Asus support, a little shaky. For Microsoft, scratching the surface. And in short circuits, retiring a 15-year-old cell phone, replacing a notebook computer's hard drive, and Microsoft announces Windows 8 updates. The CS6 version of Adobe Illustrator is the beneficiary of some functions that were originally built for other applications, such as InDesign or Photoshop. Some of the new capabilities are the result of Adobe's new Mercury Performance System that renders images across the suite of applications, and also from the new support for 64-bit systems. But this time around, Illustrator also picked up some new and improved functions that are unique to Illustrator. First, we say a very fond farewell to Live Trace. Live Trace is gone. It's been replaced by a new Image Trace. As usual, I gave the new feature an image that I thought it might choke on. I started with a 24-megabyte TIFF image, 3,888 pixels by 2,592 pixels. A picture of Chloe the cat. Then I started with the most challenging default settings, high-fidelity photo. And I told Illustrator to go ahead, perform that trace. 40 seconds later. 40 seconds later, the trace was complete. It's worth noting here that the test computer is three years old, so considerably faster computers exist today. And at the time of the test, other open applications included an email client, Firefox, UltraEdit Studio, Chrome, OneNote, Dreamweaver, Pigeon, MediaMonkey, Snagit, and Skype. The computer is a 64-bit system. It has 8 gigabytes of RAM. The result of the first step is a preview. When the trace preview has the appearance you desire after you modify the default settings to suit your needs, the next step is to tell Illustrator to perform the trace. I think of this as rendering, which is a step that's needed in some Photoshop applications. The trace preview you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website has red lines that show the image's 17,135 paths, 169,940 anchors, and the image, once rendered, is 4,062 colors. To complete the process, I click the Expand button at the top of the screen. Now, you might expect this process to take a long time, but for this image, the time to completion was about two seconds. Most of the heavy lifting is done during that preview part. Now, why would anybody want to turn a photographic image into a vector image? Well, in some cases, a small photograph can be converted to vector and then enlarged without losing as much detail as would occur if you tried to do that with a strictly pixel-based image. Additionally, a graphic artist will have options for additional processing that would not be available for a photographic image. Check out the final converted image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I zoomed in really close so you can see just how precisely Illustrator traced it. 
And if you can look at that image and not say, wow, well, you've got more restraint than I do. And this time around, extrusion really works. The extrude function has disappointed me in the past. This time it's pretty impressive. I set a deep extrusion setting, 200 points, and then to create the effect I wanted, I could enter numbers, drag sliders, or adjust a positioning cube. I do hope that an upcoming version of Illustrator will offer the ability to just grab the actual object and move it around. Some other applications already allow that. The ability to change the color of an object after creating the extrusion wasn't a surprise, but finding that if you create an extrusion using text, the text is still editable. That was a surprise. It's possible to change the typeface too, and if you do that, Illustrator re-renders the extrusion using the new typeface. One of the really nifty new features lets you make patterns. Illustrator comes with lots of ready-made patterns that can be used to fill objects, but making your own has never been what most users would consider easy. That's changed. Here's just how easy it is. I started with a blue star. Illustrator has a function that draws stars in Starburst, so this step consisted of selecting the star tool, specifying a five-pointed star, and drawing the star. Then I filled it with light blue and applied a darker blue outline. Easy. With the star selected, I picked Object Pattern Make from the menu. The default is a 5x5 five five pattern. I could change that to something else if I wanted, 7x5, whatever. But I decided to use the default. Illustrator places the master object in the center and dims the 24 copies so that it's easy to tell which is which, because you can still work on the original. It's a nice enough pattern, I decided, but maybe a bit boring, so I decided to add some additional stars. And that's where the magic begins. I duplicated the original star, changed the interior color to red, then I changed the size of the new stars, modified the rotation, made some of them partially transparent. I also dragged some of the stars so that they actually exceed the boundary of the pattern's box. And doing that causes Illustrator to wrap the image right around to the other side of the box so that the resulting effect will tile seamlessly. And I'll tell you this, if you have ever spent hours or maybe days trying to perfect a seamless background pattern for a website or a publication, you know just how much time and effort that can save. So check out the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see my lovely pattern in use. And when I finished working on the pattern, Illustrator added it to the swatch panel so that I could use it to fill any object. So I filled a star with stars. Now, it's an ugly pattern, but I have an excuse. In fact, several. First of all, I'm not a graphic artist. Even so, if I really wanted to use this pattern for something, I would have spent more than two minutes creating it, and it would be better. So view the image as an example of what can be done, not as an example of what should be done. And here's another big feature, gradients on a stroke. If you remember high school geometry, you might recall that a line is a one-dimensional object. It has length, but no height or depth. You may also remember that a point is a zero-dimensional object, but I always had trouble getting my mind around that concept. Adobe has changed the definition of a line just a bit. When you create a line in Illustrator, it can have a width. For example, take a rectangle with a six-point outline. The outline can have color, and starting with CS6, 
The outline can even have a gradient fill. To test this function, I started with a spiral. Illustrator can create a spiral easily and automatically. So you'll see a spiral on the TechBiter Worldwide website. A spiral just all by itself really isn't very interesting. But then I added a 40-point stroke that started small, opened to the full 40 points about midway through the stroke, and ended small. At that point, the stroke was still black, but I decided that I would add a yellow-orange gradient. A gradient can be either of two major types, and within each type there are three stroke options, so you get a total of six possible options here. The first general type is a linear fill, the second general type is a radial fill. Be sure to check these out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. First, the three linear fills. There's gradient within a stroke. Initially, this seems pretty hard to describe, but essentially what's going on is that the gradient is applied from left to right across the entire object. It's within the stroke, but the gradient goes across the entire object. Then there's gradient along a stroke. Well, this one's easy to describe. The gradient simply follows the stroke. If you unrolled the spiral, you'd see it's a straight line, and the gradient starts at one end, goes to the other end. Third is gradient across a stroke, also easy to describe. Again, imagine unrolling this thing, and then the gradient starts at one side of the stroke and goes to the other side of the stroke. The next overall approach is a radial fill, gradient within a stroke. This time we start with the left edge of the gradient at the center. It radiates out to the edge of the entire object. Gradient along a stroke? Well, again, imagine unrolling this spiral so that it's a straight line. The left edge of the gradient would be at the center of the line, and the right edge of the gradient would be at both ends of the stroke. That's what's happening here, but the spiral might confuse you. And finally, gradient across a stroke. The left edge of the gradient is at the center of the stroke and radiates out to the edges along the entire width. You're going to find that a lot easier to understand if you just go to the website and look at the pretty pictures. So what's the big deal about this gradient and a stroke thing? What can you do with it? Well, I have added to the TechBiter Worldwide website an image of a motorcycle. Yogesh Sharma is a member of the Adobe Quality Engineering Team. That means that he tries to break the applications that Adobe's software engineers create. To do that, he created an image of a Royal Enfield motorcycle. The image was created almost entirely of gradient-filled strokes. Now, very few people would want to do this on a regular basis because it would take a great deal of time. But for the occasional accent, that gradient-filled stroke could be a real time saver. Yogesh says he's a real fan of Royal Enfield motorcycles. Pretty impressive image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Also, a couple of videos that are worth watching. Illustrator product manager Brenda Sutherland shows you how the new pattern creation function works. And in another video, she'll show you how that ability to add gradients works. The bottom line for Adobe Illustrator, five cats, even old-time CorelDRAW users such as me can no longer ignore Adobe Illustrator's improvements. At last, I can say that Illustrator is the hands-down winner. Adobe's development team has continued to work hard at providing new and useful features and making under-the-hood changes that push Illustrator's performance to new heights. That includes the support 
for 64-bit systems. The ability to create patterns that tile seamlessly alone might be worth the price of the upgrade for some users. Extrusion, image trace, the ability to apply gradients to strokes, and vector-based Gaussian blur simply make this version an even better value. For more information, you can visit the Adobe Illustrator CS6 website. You will, of course, find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Previously, I have mentioned an Asus Transformer tablet that I've been using for several months. This is probably the last in the first-person series of reports about the Transformer TF-101. It runs the Android operating system. Initially, I loved the tablet because of what it allowed me to do. Then I added a keyboard and battery, which they call a docking station, to make it even better. But all it did was routinely drain the battery and lead to a great deal of frustration. Eventually, Asus was able to solve the problem, so this is a story with lots of ups and downs, but at least at the end, it ends on an up note. There is a lot to like. The Transformer is built well, comes with plenty of memory, and accepts an additional memory card that I use for music. It has built-in GPS, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth. The docking station adds a battery for longer life and a keyboard. Attaching and detaching the keyboard is quick and easy. It takes about three seconds. Lots of apps are available for the tablet, including the Kindle Reader and other ebook applications. That's one of my primary uses for the tablet, but it also allows me to collect my email from various accounts. Microsoft makes a OneNote app that allows me to see and modify task tracking notes that are stored on Microsoft's SkyDrive. There's enough memory to hold lots of reference materials, and the screen is large enough and sharp enough that reading is easy. Because of the quick on feature, I can pick it up in the middle of the night to check for an expected email, preview the weather, or play a quick game of Angry Birds. And yes, yes, I actually have done those things in the middle of the night. For a time, there was a lot to dislike, though. First and foremost, the problem that became apparent when I added the keyboard. Tablets are supposed to sleep and consume very little power when doing so. This allows the instant on feature that's so attractive. The extra battery in the keyboard should have extended the operational time to around 12 hours. Asus actually claims 16 hours. Instead, when the transformer was sleeping, it would exhaust both the internal battery and the keyboard battery in 6 to 8 hours. That's not even a full day's service at the office. I returned the tablet and the keyboard to Asus for service. On return, though, nothing had changed, except that somebody at Asus had removed the stick-on serial number from the keyboard and then replaced it. Both ends were loose, and eventually the serial number simply fell off. An additional request for assistance was ignored for a week or more until I visited the Asus website and used the escalation option to move the complaint up through the support chain. After that, Asus told me the battery drain problem was a known issue and described a simple four-step process that would not solve, but at least mitigate the problem. The technician told me that Asus was working on a firmware update, but didn't have an ETA for its release. The annoying part here, though, is that this was a known problem. The workaround involved downloading an app that monitored the sleep state and the technician also suggested disabling a feature that I had never enabled to begin with because I didn't need it. 
Well, the change was dramatic. Suddenly, I was able to use the tablet and the keyboard for two to three days at a time between charges. So the problem really was one of support, or perhaps more accurately, lack of support. ASUS technicians seem to work exclusively from Taiwan, and their support department appears to have an email system that frequently fails, and a website that's often overloaded to the point that it refuses connections. The technicians themselves are generally not fluent in English, and although the technicians know English a heck of a lot better than I know Chinese, communication is still difficult. But the main problem with support is the apparent lack of communication internally. When one technician is aware of a known problem, but lower-level technicians are not, the customer is not served well. Had the first-level technician been aware of this known problem, I would not have been asked to return the tablet. This would have saved my expense and time, their expense and time, and a lot of frustration on my side. So although I can recommend buying a tablet if you have needs that a tablet will address, I have considerable reluctance in suggesting any ASUS products, at least right now. Now that said, I should mention that I have had good fortune with other ASUS products and with ASUS support. And in addition to that, a quick web search turned up only a few complaints about ASUS service. So maybe the situation I experienced is the unusual one. As for the Transformer tablet, well, I once again love it. Coincidence of this week's update on the Android tablet that I've been carrying around for a while with Microsoft's announcement of the Surface tablet is just that, a coincidence. The Transformer summary has been on the calendar for more than a month. Although the positioning is coincidental, it serves to highlight my reasons for avoiding Apple's iPad, selecting the tablet I did, and now giving consideration to Microsoft's upcoming tablet. I can actually explain that in a single word keyboard. The iPad and other tablets have what are called soft keyboards that can be made to appear on screen. These keyboards have no tactile response. Typing is a lot like drumming your fingers on a countertop. The soft keyboards are okay for sending short text messages, but far from adequate for any activity that requires extended typing, responding to a business email, for example. So that's why I didn't buy an iPad. Now, there are keyboards available for it, but generally they have not been received well. They're described as clunky and just not well made. So the keyboard is why when I decided that a tablet would be useful, I bought the Asus Transformer 101 and its auxiliary keyboard. And it's why when the time comes to replace the Transformer, I will look carefully at Microsoft's offering. The primary difficulty I have with the Transformer, now that the power consumption problem has been resolved, is remembering that the underlying operating system is the Linux-based Android operating system, even though the visual presentation makes it look a lot like Windows. The fact that Windows 8 will run on a tablet as well as on my desktop and notebook computers would be a welcome unifying factor. But cost is going to be a factor, too, and initially it appears that Microsoft has missed the mark on pricing, even though the Surface comes with a keyboard that the iPad lacks and includes a kickstand that will make it easier to use on a desk. There will be two versions of the Surface, 
One, starting around $500, runs on an ARM processor and runs Windows RT. A second, starting around $1,000, features a third-generation Intel Core processor and runs Windows 8 Pro. Microsoft has a long battle ahead of it here. Apple has about two-thirds of the tablet market, despite numerous lower-priced Android competitors. It's clear that Microsoft's new Windows 8 operating system is designed with devices such as this in mind, though. Although Windows 8 works a lot like Windows 7 when it's on a computer with a keyboard and mouse, it's more natural with gesture-based tablets. Steve Jobs had a well-known and perhaps irrational dislike for devices that use a stylus, but sometimes that's exactly what's needed. Drawing with your fingers is finger painting, while drawing with a stylus has the feel of real-life drawing. The Surface supports a stylus. Because it runs a version of Windows, the Surface will also run some traditional Windows applications. And that could convince some corporate IT managers to consider how tablets could be integrated into the overall business landscape. During this week's introduction, Microsoft talked about its 30-year history of manufacturing hardware. And my first thought was, what hardware? Were they talking about the Zune? That was a failure. How about the Kin? That was so much of a failure that most people have never heard of it. Microsoft does make good keyboards. Microsoft makes reasonably passable mice. And, of course, there's the Xbox. It's been pretty successful. But as a hardware manufacturer, Microsoft pales in comparison to Apple. And additionally, the Surface treads dangerously close to territory staked out by Dell, Toshiba, HP, and all the other hardware manufacturers that make computers. Apple's market share has been growing, and the hardware manufacturers probably aren't happy about Microsoft's foray into the hardware business. Certainly, they must be wondering, if this effort is successful, whether Microsoft will start making laptop and desktop systems under its own name. If that happens, what would the manufacturers do? What could they do? Apple certainly isn't interested in licensing its operating system to manufacturers, so Microsoft looks like the only option. But there is Linux, and Linux is more than adequate for a lot of users. Might the manufacturers try to protect their brands by offering some models that don't run a Microsoft operating system? In short circuits, everybody I know has a smartphone these days. But until last month, I'd been using a nearly 15-year-old phone. Well, now I've upgraded to a phone that offers the most advanced technology available in 2004. Sometimes the latest and greatest technology just isn't what we need. It's not important for the phone I carry to connect to the Internet. If I can use it to make phone calls, I'm happy. And that's what the Nokia 6800S that I've been lugging around since sometime in the mid-1990s has provided. I've replaced the battery at least once, and I actually retired previously when my older daughter gave me one of her old phones. As it turned out, the new old phone didn't serve me as well as the old old phone. So I retired the new phone and started using the old one again. But more than a decade and a half is a long time for technology. 
I still don't need much more than a phone that makes phone calls, and the old Nokia phone wasn't actually doing a particularly good job in that regard. It was getting pretty old. Even on its highest volume setting, it was difficult to hear the caller in any but the quietest environment. Stress cracks were becoming larger and more evident in the case. It was time to replace the phone. I use a prepaid T-Mobile plan because I don't need a lot of options for data. Most of the time, day and night, I have access to the Internet either from the office computer or one of several home computers or a tablet. So what I really needed was a basic phone. The Nokia phone has been replaced by a Samsung T369. It has a keyboard, it has a camera, one megapixel, and that's about it. I could have given you one of those, my older daughter said. She had retired her Samsung T369 several years ago in favor of something more modern. The main points, though, are these, at least for me. First, the Samsung T369 does everything I need it to do, which is make phone calls. The camera is unimportant because I have a far better camera in my briefcase, and if I know there'll be a need for pictures, I take along a digital SLR. Second, the phone cost only 60 bucks. is getting a lot of time on this week's program. She called the other day and said, the computer won't boot and it says no operating system is available. She also mentioned that the computer was making a funny sound. Have you ever noticed that when computers start making funny sounds, the result is never humorous? Well, I saw the same message when I tried booting the machine, an older IBM notebook computer. It was clear that the disk was dead, but I decided to run one more test with BootMed, BootMed found the disk drive, but said no partitions existed. The drive was old and small, just 40 gigabytes. When I opened the case and pulled the drive out, I saw that the Travel Star made by Hitachi in cooperation with IBM had an incept date of 18 June 2004. So it's been running for eight years. Not bad. When the drive is shaken, it rattles. Now that's not a good sign, but I already knew the drive had failed. Fortunately, I had another drive sitting on the shelf, an 80-gigabyte drive that I'd removed from an equally old Toshiba computer. The drive had Linux installed, and the Toshiba computer it came with had long since expired, so I plugged it in, booted with a Windows 7 installation disk, formatted and partitioned the drive, and installed Windows 7 on a computer and hard drive that long predated Windows Vista, to say nothing of Windows 7. The result? New lease on life for an old computer. distant past to the near future. If you bought a computer that runs Windows 7 on or after June 2nd, or if you buy one anytime before Windows 8 is released, 
Microsoft says you can upgrade the system to Windows 8 for about $15. According to Microsoft, and I quote, the Windows upgrade offer provides consumers who buy an eligible Windows 7 PC the option to purchase a downloadable upgrade to Windows 8 Pro for an estimated retail price of just $14.99 U.S. during the time of the promotion, which will be redeemable when Windows 8 is generally available. Microsoft promises there will be many more offers in conjunction with the general availability of Windows 8, probably priced at equally odd price points. How can you have an estimated price of $14.99? And why not just say $15? Well, no surprise that Microsoft is going to be out really pushing the operating system. Some critics are already using sharpened knives to skewer Windows 8, and some of the most vocal critics admit that they've used Windows 8 for about 15 minutes. There's probably an analogy or a simile for that, but I can't think of one at the moment. All I can say is that anyone who makes a decision about an operating system based on a few minutes of exposure to it isn't exactly the brightest bulb in the pack. But I digress, as usual. Consumers who buy new Windows 7 PCs that come with an installed version of Windows 7, Home Basic, Home Premium, Professional, or Ultimate, will be eligible for the offer. The offer ends January 31st, 2013, and the updates have to be redeemed before the program expires at the end of February. Consumers who register for the Windows Update offer will be able to download Windows 8 starting the day it is made available generally. The upgrade can be installed on any eligible and compatible Windows PC, and it comes with 90 days of support from Microsoft. If you'd like to know more about that now, you can find the information on Microsoft's Windows 8 blog. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.